everyone. Great to be together again today. Before I get into today's message, I just wanted to say thank you to those who've been helping us with all the technical stuff we're doing at the moment. We've had a huge learning process over the past couple of months trying to get to grips with all kinds of different online platforms and cameras and lights and all the rest. And uh, we're learning lots and learning fast. There's still improvements that we could certainly make, uh, but I'm grateful to the guys who've been particularly helping make it work, Nancy and John and Liam. Liam just came onto staff as we were going into lockdown, really, a very strange time to come on, onto staff at a church. Um, but so helpful to have his skills. So thank you to those guys. Thank you also to all those of you who've been giving us feedback about how the stuff we're putting out is helping. Uh, please do feeding back to us, that's really helpful. And uh, we'll continue to try and do that and improve as much as we can. Let me ask you a question. Who do you trust? And how has your confidence, your trust in authority increased or decreased over this corona season? A week or so ago, Neil Ferguson, who was the government's chief advisor, scientist from Imperial College, the one who was behind the campaign telling us all to stay at home, telling us not to meet up with people outside our homes, was found out because his uh, lover, a married woman, was traveling across London to have romantic trysts with him in his house. He, of course, had to resign. I wonder what that did for your sense of confidence in authority. I wonder how you're feeling about the British government at the moment. I wonder how you felt after uh, the Prime Minister's announcements last week about slight changes in the current situation and things we can do a bit more now and things we still can't do. I wonder how you feel what your level of trust is towards those in authority in other parts of the world. How do you feel about the government of the United States? Would you entrust yourself gladly to the government of China? Where is your level of belief, your confidence, your trust at the moment? Now, our series is called True and Better, and the huge audacious claim that we are making in this series is that Jesus is true and that he is better, that he is the one you can believe in. He is the one, yes, you really can trust. And that issue, that question, that question of trust, of belief, comes into sharp focus in the story that we're gonna look at today. It's a story of Nicodemus, and we're gonna start just before Nicodemus is introduced at the end of chapter two of John. We're gonna read verses 23 to 24 together. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. The story we're looking at today is a story about a man called Nicodemus, but these verses at the end of chapter two set the scene of what's going on. It's really the question of what do people make of Jesus? And that is a key question. It's a key question of this story. And I think it's a key question of our lives. It's a key question anyone can ask. And what these verses describe is people who believed in Jesus because of the signs that he'd been doing. They'd seen his power, they'd seen some miracles he'd done, and so they'd started to put their belief in him. They're described as believers, but as the story goes on, we see that their belief and they themselves are far from being dependable. It seems like they're believing as far as they can, but their belief isn't necessarily particularly sticky. It's not the kind of belief that really lasts. And as we go through the, the Gospel of John, what we see is that some people do have sticky faith, faith that lasts, and others have belief, at least for a time in Jesus, because of what he's doing, 
but it's not a faith that really sticks. We also see in these verses that belief cuts the other way because it's not only about the extent of belief of trust that people have in Jesus, it's also about the belief that Jesus himself has in others. And there's this line here where it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them. It's like Jesus wouldn't believe in them. And what we see about Jesus here is that his own sense of call, his sense of purpose and destiny was not dependent upon the dependability of others. That's such an interesting thing and such a helpful thing. It wasn't dependent upon what others thought of him. He wasn't a politician obsessing over approval ratings. He wasn't a celebrity constantly checking and counting Instagram follows. Dare I say it, he wasn't even a pastor keeping an eye on how many views his messages are getting on YouTube. That's not what Jesus did. His, his sense of purpose and call didn't depend upon others and their belief in him. Jesus knew, actually Jesus knows, exactly what people, actually exactly what we are like. He was able to look inside and see exactly what people were like. And this means that he knew what was in each person. He knew how genuine or not their belief really was. And this means that Jesus tends to turn the tables on people, tends to turn the tables on us. We come to Jesus asking him questions, assessing him, like the crowd here described in John, do this and we'll believe in you. Show us this sign and we'll believe. And what happens is that Jesus looks right inside us and knows us and Rather than us asking the questions of Jesus, we find that he starts to ask questions of us. And that's what happens next. Let's read on in the story. John 3, verses 1 to 13. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Now, there is no one better qualified as a good man than Nicodemus, our friend Nick here. He belonged to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the serious party. They were serious about life. They were serious about God. They were serious about being as obedient as possible as they could to the law that God had given to Moses. And Nick is not only a member of the serious party, serious about life, serious about his faith, serious about religion, he also recognizes that Jesus comes from God, and so he comes to Jesus looking for some answers. Now, it says in the story that he comes at night, and it's often been speculated that that indicates some kind of uh, secretiveness or embarrassment on Nick's part, that perhaps he didn't want his fellow members of the serious party to know that he was going to visit Jesus, and so he came in the dark when it was a bit easier to avoid attention. Whether or not that's the case, what we know about Nicodemus, this serious man coming to Jesus, recognizing Jesus is sent by God. If anybody has the credentials to be in, it's Nick. He's a good man by any measure of goodness, certainly as it would have been understood at this time, he was, he ticked all the boxes. He was a good man. But what Jesus seems to do in this encounter is in a way to attack Nick's credentials. He doesn't commend Nick for his seriousness. And neither does Jesus try to get Nick on side. It says in the story that Nick was a member of the ruling council. This was a man with authority and prestige. And you could imagine that Jesus might have thought, well, let's get this man on side. Let's get him into our team because of the influence he has. And that will be useful. But Jesus doesn't do any of that kind of thing. And Jesus doesn't look at Nick and see how well he's doing and how qualified he is in himself and how good he is by any measure and say to him, well, you just need to do a little bit more. You just need a little extra step. You just need to have a little bit more theological understanding. You just need a little bit more faith. No, Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus does say to Nicodemus is you must be born again. You must be born all over again from above. Nick, your credentials count for nothing. You need a complete reboot. Now, in Jesus' assessment of Nick and Nick's credentials, it's actually a very sobering assessment of all our credentials, of all our notions of what is good, of who is good. And what we see from this story is that it doesn't matter how good you are, because probably you're not as good as Nick was. Very few people are as good as Nick was. Very few people are as serious as Nick was about life and religion and doing things properly. Very few people are as good as Nick, and Nick wasn't good enough. Nick comes to Jesus with his questions, but Jesus turns the tables. What he does is to expose Nick's lack of understanding. Nicodemus begins well. He says to Jesus, only someone who comes from God could do the things that you are doing. But then when Jesus says, Nick, it's not enough. You need to be born again. Nicodemus seems to start to scoff at that idea. How can anyone be born again? And we could ask the question of Nicodemus, Nick, what's happened to your understanding of God? You've just said that no one could do the things that Jesus is doing unless he'd been sent by God. And now Jesus is talking about God making you new. And you start to scoff at that. What's happened to your idea of God? Nick is Israel's teacher. That's how Jesus describes him, Israel's teacher. As the teacher of Israel, as a man who was serious, a man who knew by memory probably all of the Old Testament scriptures, 
This was a man who should have understand that, understood that God is in the business of new birth. That's what God does. Think about how often new birth happens in the story of the people of Israel. Think of the story of Moses, that wonder baby, a promised baby, born at a time of great peril when uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was killing the, the baby boys of Israel. And uh, Moses' mother hides him in a reed basket and floats him in a river. And it's like Moses is born and then he's reborn as the uh, princess, Pharaoh's daughter, pulls him out of the river and takes him into her own care. Think about what happens later when Israel, when Israel is being led by that Moses, now a man sent by God for their rescue. And he leads the people of Israel across the sea. God opens up the water and it's like a new birth. The people leave Egypt, leave death. They pass through the water and they come into life. Think about what happens 40 years later when now Joshua, Moses' apprentice, is leading the people of Israel and they come to the border of their new territory at last and the Jordan River is the obstacle and again God opens the waters and the people of Israel pass through on dry land. It's like a new birth. They've left the wilderness wanderings and they're coming into the promised land. Think about some of the prophecies we see in the Old Testament scriptures. Think about Ezekiel 37 where God shows Ezekiel a picture of a valley full of dry bones, bones that are dead and scattered and then as, as Ezekiel watches, the Lord puts the bones together and the bones are covered with flesh and then God breathes into the bones and they come to life. It's new birth. Nick is Israel's teacher. He should have known that God is in the business of new births. Why can't God do this, Nick? Why can't God do this for you? I wonder if Nick was partly falling into the trap that I think many of us can, that in a sense it's easy to have faith for the big things. Did God create the world? Yes. Was Jesus raised from the dead? Yes. Can Jesus work in my life to transform me? Mm, not so sure. Nick is Israel's teacher. He should have understood what Jesus was saying. What Jesus is saying here has references to all those Old Testament stories of new birth, also relates very much to prophecy in Ezekiel again. A few verses before the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel had prophesied pretty much exactly what Jesus here says to Nicodemus. Let's read Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What we see from this prophecy in Ezekiel is that God had promised new birth. He promised new hearts. He promised a, the spirit being poured out into his people. And Jesus says to Nick on this encounter, this is the only way, Nick. It's about being born again. It's about being born from above. What Ezekiel saw, saw is coming true in me. And Nick's response is, how can these things happen? And Jesus says the way they will happen is by him being lifted up and you believing. Let's read what Jesus says here, John 3, 14 to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What Jesus is referencing in these verses is a rather strange story that is told us in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 21. And so help us to see what that story is about. We're just going to cut to the kids' work video now and see the dramatised version. Um, excuse me, but what is this about Moses and a snake? Well, Jesus was pointing back to a story that took place thousands of years before he came to earth. You may remember that Moses was the leader of the Israelites who were God's people. God had just used Moses to rescue all of the people and bring them out of Egypt where they had been used as slaves by the Egyptians. Well, not long after God had rescued the people from Egypt, they all started grumbling. They were walking through the desert because God had promised to bring them to a but they stopped trusting God and they turned against him and against Moses. What? They complain even though they'd just been rescued? Yes! And as you can probably imagine, God wasn't too happy about this. He wanted to teach his people to trust him. So he sent fiery snakes among the people and they bit them. And lots of the people even died. Then the people turned to Moses and they said, We're so sorry that we We've sinned against God and against you. Now please pray to God to take away the snakes. So Moses prayed to God and God told him to make a snake and put it on a pole. And he said that anyone who looked at the snake would live even if they had been bitten. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And everyone who was bitten by the snakes looked at the bronze snake and they lived just as God had said. Hmm, and I'm still really quite confused. What is that snake stuff got to do with Jesus? And what does this mean about being born again? Well, why don't we hand back to Susie and Nancy to explain? I'm afraid that rather than going back to Susie and Nancy, you've come back to me. Although you can, of course, go and watch the kids' work video in its entirety later on if you want to. Now, what is it about the snake? What's with the snake? And what is it with being born again? Now, we humans have a very complex relationship with snakes. In many parts of the world, snakes are actually the most obvious danger. Lots of people die from snake bites around the world every year. And uh, there's an obvious danger about snakes because they're dangerous. But snakes are also not obvious because they're very good at hiding. Snakes are by definition sneaky. They're, they're sneaky snakes. They hide and you can tread on them without seeing them and that's when you get bit and that's when you get hurt and when you get sick and when you can die. And this means that snakes often inspire terror even in, in our Western society. Many people have what often is actually an irrational fear of snakes, but around the world, many people are, are terrified of snakes. Some of you have probably got a real phobia about snakes. There's something in us as human beings, a kind of a, an ancestral uh, fear that we feel towards snakes. Now, we can understand that practically because snakes are sneaky and snakes are dangerous, but I think it's also, well, I'm sure, there's a theological dimension to this as well. We're told in Genesis, beginning of the story, beginning of the human story, that it was a snake, a serpent, that sneaked into the garden and deceived Adam and Eve and tempted them in a way which caused them to fall into sin and the whole unravelling of all that happened as a consequence of that. It is the snake that is the enemy and biblically 
we see that the snake is the enemy, the snake representing all that is sinful, sneaky, opposed to God, prone to bite us on the heel, trip us up, poison us, kill us. And when the people of Israel sinned, that story in Numbers tells us, God sent snakes amongst them to punish them. And then they were saved by this bronze snake which Moses lifted up on a pole. It's a rather strange story. I think part of what's happening there is that as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on a pole and the people looked at it and were healed, I think what is happening is that the people are being confronted by the reality of their sin. The reason that they are punished by God is because they have been grumbling and moaning and rebelling against Moses and rebelling against God. And this bronze serpent that Moses lifts up is kind of forcing them to confront the reality of their sin. They have again been tripped up, tricked by the sneaky snake. They've fallen into sin and they've suffered the consequences. And it's as they recognize and acknowledge the reality of their sin by being confronted with this bronze serpent that God then has mercy on them and heals them and delivers them. The presenting problem amongst the Israelites was illness and death through snake bites, but the underlying problem, the real problem, was rebellion against God, sin, that kind of snake bite. And so Jesus says to Nick that he is going to be lifted up like that bronze snake was. And here Jesus is looking ahead to the cross. At the cross, sin was exposed for what it is. The horror of sin was exposed for what it was, for what it is, as Jesus hung on the cross. And at the cross, sin was dealt with. At the cross, sin was nailed to the cross in the body of Christ. Jesus killed sin at the cross. At the cross, it's the snake that gets bit. The serpent's head is crushed at the cross. And so Jesus says to Nick, look, there was this bronze snake that Moses lifted in the wilderness and it caused the people to be healed. I'm going to be lifted up and I will bring healing to the world. Jesus is the true and better healer who brings us life. And so, Jesus having said that, we come to what is surely the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16. I like to, uh, this, the way to, uh, it's broken down here. God, the greatest subject ever, nothing you could think of greater than God, so much, the greatest extent ever, loved, the greatest affection ever, the world the greatest object ever, that he gave his one and only son, the greatest gift ever, so that whoever, which is the greatest opportunity ever, who simply believes in him, which is the greatest commitment you can ever make, shall not perish, which is the greatest rescue ever, but have eternal life, which is the greatest promise ever. The scope of what Jesus says here, John 3.16, is wonderful. God's love is for the whole world. Now, later on, John tells us not to love the world. In his uh, 
first letter in his first epistle, John says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So in John 3.16, we have scripture telling us that God so loved the world. And in 1 John 2, we have scripture telling us not to love the world. The point is not that the love that the world is so big it takes a lot of love to get around it. It's, it's not saying love makes the world go round, as we might say. The, the point that we need to see here is that the world is so alienated against God. The world is in, is in such rebellion against God that it takes an extraordinarily and exceedingly great kind of love to love the world at all. It's the challenge of loving a rebel. It's the challenge of loving that uh, child of yours who's gone completely off the rails, has gone completely wayward, but still having enough parental love to embrace them and care for them and love them. It's that love of an estranged friendship where rather than just giving up on it, you continue to love and hope and hold tight the, the, the promise that maybe one day things will be reconciled. It's, it's, it's the, the costly love of a rebel for a rebel that uh, God has for us. And Jesus came with this alienation-busting love, a love that was so big, a, a love for the whole world. He, he came with the power to heal the world of its sin. He came with the offer of new life. New life for Nick, new life for me, new life for you. Jesus is able to heal us. It's a great promise, this promise of eternal life, this promise of world-encompassing love. But we need to finish where the passage does. There's great hope in this passage, but there's also serious warning. Let's read the next verses. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In what John says here, we're back to where we started. We're back to questions of belief, to questions of trust. Will you believe and live, or will you reject Jesus and be condemned? This uh, teaching about condemnation can seem hard to us. I found this quote from a commentator I read helpful. Christ comes to judge the world as little as the sun comes to throw a shadow, yet judgment, like the shadow, is the natural consequence of the world's constitution and circumstances. The sun doesn't exist to cast shadows, but that's the reality of objects being in the sun's way. 
the way that the world is set up, the way of our rebellion against God, our alienation from God is so severe that actually what that results in just has to, just by default, just because that's how it is, is condemnation. Jesus said he did not come to condemn the world, but to bring life. We can do things the world's way, we can do things the rebel's way, and judgment is the consequence. We can be like those snake-bit Israelites, or we can believe and know life. We can know the healing light of Jesus. Now, what about Nick? What happened to him? Well, we get the impression that he kept showing up. In chapter 7 of John, we have an encounter where Nicodemus defends Jesus uh, against the other Pharisees. And then in chapter 19 of John, after Jesus has been crucified, we're told that it's Nick with Joseph of Arimathea who comes and asks for the body of Christ and cares for it and puts it in the tomb. It looks very much like Nick trusted. It looks like Nick believed. It looks like Nick was born again. It looks like he was healed. Now what about you? Is this your day to step into the light? Is this your day to step into new life in Christ? Is this your day to step into new birth, birth from above, birth which comes from God? I guess most of us watching this have already made that step of faith, that step of trust, that step of belief. What's the lesson for us in this? Well, we need to see again that Jesus really is the one who heals us. He has healed us. He's healed us of our sin. He's enabled us to come into the presence of God. He's washed us, cleansed us, brought us into his light, free of shadows. It's a miracle that every day, no matter how old you are, means that you are new. There's promise, there's hope, there's eternal life in him. He came to give us life. He came to give us life for eternity. And this means that each and every day we can rejoice in Jesus, our healer, and all that he has done for us. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Jesus, I choose to step into your light today. I do not trust in my own credentials, but in your power to make me new. You are able to heal me. Praise God, you don't condemn me. You were lifted up on the cross so that I might have eternal life. By this, I have experienced the reality of God's world-encompassing love. Help me today and every day to trust and believe you. Grant me faith that sticks. You who are true and better, light of the world, healer, in you I put my trust. Amen.